As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the fourth psalm. It's the fourth psalm. We'll begin our reading there at the superscription. Hear once again the word of our God. To the chief musician on Neginot, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call upon him, unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. As far as the public reading of God's word, may we know its blessing this evening. Before we take up the psalm, I want to make just a brief remark that we'll return to at the end of our time this evening. And that is that when we think of the scriptures, and especially that onus that is left upon the hearers to believe what the scriptures present to us, how do you understand that burden? How do you understand the obligation that scripture confers on those who hear it? Is the scripture, are the scriptures calling us to believe something in like an alternate reality, a fourth dimension, another realm, so to speak? Friend, I'd submit to you that that's not what the scriptures are doing at all. When it summons men to faith, it, it does so urging not to believe in, in some other reality, but it, it comes urging for them to see the world in which they live aright. In other words, the unbeliever misperceives the world in which he lives. And the scriptures come and when it urges men to believe, it's saying, really, this is the only way to see the world in which you live. Our psalm this evening does precisely that thing. It urges that self-same call. It urges sinners to come to terms with reality by believing what the word of God reveals. How does it do so? As you look at the psalm, you'll notice that really there are three basic parts to it. In the first part, you find petition in verse 1. The psalmist goes to God and pleads for mercy. But then in verses 2 to 5, you find the psalmist turn from the Lord, turn from the throne of grace, and look squarely at those who are his interlocutors. And then the psalm closes, verses 6 to 8, once again with the psalmist returning to the Lord in prayer. The occasion for the psalm is quite clear. In the first verse, you find that the man is in distress. 
And then we're told really in verse 2 what is largely the cause of this distress. The ones who are as interlocutors, he says, you turn my glory into shame. And the sense then is that this is calumny. The psalmist is faced with false accusations. And the sense in this text is that not only are these accusations being leveled against him, but but David is being persecuted on the basis of these calumnies. And so the psalmist is afflicted, and he's pursued. I think Kelvin is quite helpful here. He says there's really nothing more painful to us than to be falsely condemned and to endure at one and the same time wrongful violence and slander. That manifestly is the occasion for the writing of the psalm. The distress is that which comes from these false accusations and this wrongful persecution. A friend, we can meditate at considerable length there. But I want you to notice that right throughout the psalm, the psalmist really quickly leaves the occasion and sets his focus on something else. He, in other words, doesn't focus primarily on the difficulty of that affliction. He, he drives the, the, the one who is, who is his reader, he drives those who are in praise to God with this psalm to other themes. Just look at the third verse for a moment. He says, the Lord will hear. A very clear statement of faith. Verse 5, he urges his interlocutors, his false accusers, to put your trust in the Lord. Verse 8, he says that he will rest in peace, he will sleep. What you see, friend, here is that this fourth psalm, though its occasion, is certainly one of deep affliction. The overwhelming focus of this fourth psalm is that of faith. In fact, what's striking is the affliction of the psalmist very much recedes into the background and the motions of his soul as he is trusting in God becomes the principal focus. Friend, what you and I learn here is that the psalmist is reckoning with reality. He's faced with a real and a pinching affliction, a hard providence, a crucible, but no less real to the psalmist are the promises of God. And it's there that the psalmist drives his heart and drives us this evening. The affliction is real and the promise is equally real to him as he holds to it by faith. What this psalm teaches us then, friends, is that faith rests in the reality of God's promises. Faith rests in the reality of God's promises. And I want us to look at the grounds of this faith, the gauntlet that it lays before the unbeliever, and the gladness that it invites. So take, first of all, the grounds of this faith. And for that, I want you to look just at the first verse, where we find the profession of his faith. He addresses God in a way that's rather striking. He says, God of my righteousness. Now, in the case that the psalmist is faced with, that of false accusation, this appeal to God, this manner of approach is perfectly sensible. He goes to God as the one who is the vindicator of truth, the the, the judge of all the earth who does right. And so he goes to God, the God of righteousness, the God of truth. But I want you to notice something. We have to move further than that. He doesn't appeal to the God of righteousness only. He doesn't appeal to the God of truth only. He says, God of my righteousness. Elohi Sedoki. 
Not just the God of truth. Not just the God who does right, but my God. And, and quite literally translated, God, my righteousness. The psalmist has a special stake in God, and he invokes that as he goes before him and pleads for mercy. This is his God and his righteousness. Now, friend, just briefly, how is this so? How can the psalmist say that, that God is his righteousness? As you look through the Psalter, that's a certainly that's a, that's a very that's a very basic question, isn't it? It's one that we encounter twice in the Psalter itself. Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Psalm 143. Psalm 130. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who should stand? So, so we're faced with this difficulty. How could anyone who's of the fallen race of Adam call God his righteousness? Say that he has some special stake in God and that, that, that his righteousness is grounded somehow in God, founded in him. Friend, as you look at Jeremiah 23, you'll find that the people of God generally refer to the Lord as the Lord our righteousness. It's not just the psalmist's experience. It's all of God's people that can say such. And how can they say that? Well, friend, you probably already have the text in your mind, don't you? God has made Christ Jesus wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That, friend, is ultimately how God becomes our righteousness. How Jehovah said, Kenu, the Lord our righteousness is indeed ours. But we do need to go further, because what this psalm is doing is, is not dwelling much on the doctrine of justification. He's making use of the doctrine. What I mean by that is he is saying that as he is reconciled to God, God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, God now will be his special vindicator, not just of his truth, but of the psalmist. God will vindicate his truth, even the false accusations that are leveled against the ungodly. But not because the ungodly are God's inheritance. Not because they are his special people. It's that latter kind of vindication, both of truth and of the psalmist himself, that the psalmist here invokes. And you notice this when you come to verse 3, why his mind is so fixed. He says, know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. And the sense is the psalmist has been reserved, and all of the godly have been reserved to God. And if they are his inheritance, God will exercise a special care over them. So as to vindicate them. And not just truth. This is quite personal. It's not abstract. And then I want you to notice, friend, that this is a general statement. It would be wrong of us, it would be wrong of us to narrow this text to refer only to the kingship or the promise of kingship that David received. Here David speaks in general terms, all that are godly are specially the Lord's. And because of that truth, you notice what he concludes with. He says, the Lord will hear when I call unto him. Their friend is the reality. And there is the man's assurance that he has a claim himself in that precious promise. 
Now, all of that is the psalmist's profession of faith. So allow me very briefly to set before you what are the grounds of that faith. If you look down at verse 6, he says, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Now, that's a striking prayer. And it's all the more striking when you look at several other phrases in the psalm. Note what follows just briefly afterward. The psalmist says that he will lay down in peace. Then, if you go back to the first verse, the psalmist, in our translations, have him pleading for mercy. The word there could be legitimately translated, have grace. The Lord's countenance, the Lord's peace, and the Lord's grace. Friend, I hope that that drives, drives your mind back to number six and to the ironic benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Friend, the whole psalm is in one sense a meditation and an application of the ironic benediction. And so what are the grounds of the psalmist's faith? It's the promise that is given in God's word. It is, the, it is the priestly benediction, both as it is given to us in the word of God and as it is exercised as an ordinance of the gospel. And so, friend, what you find in this fourth psalm is that the psalmist has lodged himself in that promise. He's rooted himself in what he finds in the word of God. And he builds his supplication. He trains his mind accordingly. And what this teaches us, friend, is that then that faith rests in the promises that it finds in God's word. The very structure and the themes of the psalm reinforce this. For the psalmist, friend, these promises, like that of the priestly benediction, a friend, they're like a check written out to him. And he wouldn't leave it anywhere. It's a check of of incredible value. And so he carries it with him. These things are precious to him, and so in the midst of affliction, he holds on to what he has in God's word. The promissory notes that God himself has made over to his people. Even in the midst of affliction, they go with him. And friend, what you see here is a man who has stored up these promises for such a time as this. And this is our great and our necessary work as God's people. To store up those promises and to do so by faith. Because, friend, the use of scriptures, the use of the ordinance such as the benediction, all of those things are to be appropriated for faith. And all of those things can only be of real use to us if we rest in them believingly. And the psalmist manifests that he is stored up for such a time as this. In the midst of even such a difficult, such a heavy affliction as this was, the word of God was his counselor, his comforter. Now if the word of God is the grounds of his faith, what is the gauntlet? You find that in verses 2 and also verses 4 and 5. 
The psalmist begins in verse 2 with a stream of questions. He starts with, how long will you turn my glory into shame? And, and in light of the occasion, in light of the false accusations the psalmist was faced with, this is certainly a very sensible question. How long will you continue to, to, to promote these calumnies? But I want you to notice the two statements that follow. The two questions. How long will you love vanity? In the scripture sense, the word there is nothingness. Then he follows this, and how long, after, how long will you be seeking after leasing? The word leasing there is the same word for deceit, for lying. If you were in the psalmist's position yourself, I wonder if this is how you would address your false accusers. It's, it seems a bit strange, doesn't it? But we can go further. I want you to look at the fourth verse. After asking these questions, he exhorts them to certain things. He says, first of all, stand in awe. Now, friend, the fear or the trembling that's in view there is not that of impending judgment. This is a summons to sobriety. In other words, the psalmist is saying you need to, you need to come to terms with what is real. In fact, I want you to notice this. Whenever he says, and sin not, the sense is that's not a second command. That's an effect of what has followed, of, of, what, of, of what has preceded, rather. If they will sober up, so to speak, certainly they'll be induced to leave off their sinful courses. And then note what he says. And again, friend, this is a striking way to deal with one's false accusers. He says, commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. And what you see here is he's saying, go pull yourself into quietude so that you can meditate. Now, friend, all of this is counsel that you and I would give to somebody who's lost grip of reality. All of this is counsel that you and I would give to somebody who has lost the sense of what's real and what's true. And yet the psalmist levels this at his false accusers. I want you to notice that this is an incredibly serene way to deal with one's enemies. It's an incredibly impersonal way to deal with one's false accusers. So what is the psalmist driving at? Well, friend... I want you to notice that he offers an alternative to the nothingness and to the deceitfulness that these ones are pursuing. It comes to us there in verse 5. Put your trust in the Lord. And I want you to notice what he's doing here. It's It's a profound thing. He's saying to the ungodly, you need to come to terms with what is real. And this is, this is how you do that. You put your trust in the Lord. Do you notice that he makes a contrast between the nothingness and the deceitfulness and what he exhorts them to in this fifth verse? Friend, all of this teaches us that, that here the psalmist recognizes that the ungodly pursue their ungodliness as they misperceive reality. Oh, I hope that strikes you. I I hope that does, friend, because this is one of those ones where, one of those texts where it just reinforces for us, friend, what faith really is. It takes us back to how we began this, this evening. 
He talks to these ones as though they're deranged. Because they are. Those who do not put their trust in the Lord, friend, it's not that they don't believe in invisible realms or another dimension. It's that they don't see the world right around them. And that's why the scriptures call the atheist a fool. That's not an insult, friend. That's a genuine statement. That's a statement of fact. They do not see the world around them aright. And so the psalmist prescribes this this movement into quietude and meditation to try to come to terms if God gives grace with what is real. Friend, I recognize that in one sense this seems quite disjointed to us because we live when we do. I mean, there's been an incredible reversal in our society. You know, thousands of years before, pagan and Jewish society alike would have looked at a professed atheist as being someone who was mentally ill, genuinely deranged, and that the only wise person was the follower of God. Now the generation in which we live, it's just the opposite. So we, I don't think we grasp, I don't think, I don't think we gravitate to this kind of response that the psalmist does as naturally as we should. What the psalmist is saying here is that it's, it's not the case. It's not the case that the ungodly are wise. It's not the case that the atheist is the one endowed with a right sense of what is there in front of him. It's quite the opposite. Friend, this is, and I mean this, in an, I mean this as, as being a true, a true epistemological attack, if you will. The psalmist is not on the defensive, he's on the offensive here. And he's saying you don't see the world around you right, and you won't until you put your trust in the Lord. I want to close this evening, though, with those last two verses in which the psalmist leaves his interlocutors and now he relates to us something of his own experience. He says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. Now that's his experience, but I want you to notice that it takes us back to the very first verse. And friend, this is an important exegetical key for this altar The first verse, our attention should always be trained upon it. Because the psalmist often begins where he will end. Or if you like, he concludes at the beginning. Remember in the first verse, he says, Thou hast enlarged me in distress. Now he tells us what that looks like. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. But he makes a comparison as he says this. And friends, the, friend, the sense is that the promises that faith looks to here are more real, as it were, and more delightsome, certainly, than the corn and the wine that his enemies enjoy. They are more real to him, friend, and more, and more desirable to him than those very tangible and sensible Elements of wealth and security that the wicked enjoy. This leads the psalmist to make something of a vow. In which he says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. 
Here's his experience, and now we find his resolution. He will lay himself down in sleep, in peace. And here's why. Because thou, Lord, only, he says here, makest me to dwell in safety. If we hold all of that together as we close this evening, what you and I should see here is that faith enjoys and resolves to rest in God's promises. It enjoys and it resolves to rest in God's promises. Thomas Jonathan Jackson, a lieutenant general in the Confederate States of America, He said famously that he felt as safe on the battlefield as he did in bed. That was not a statement that was foolhardy. He was not saying that he ran headlong into danger. This was not fatalism. This was an expression of his faith in God. Jackson understood just what the psalmist himself is intimating here to us this this evening. Even in the midst of a convulsing context, even with the most pinching and oppressive of afflictions, the psalmist can say in the midst of that, I am safe. Ultimately, it will do me no harm. I want you to think about David in the cave of Adullam, the text that we read from 2 Samuel, sorry, 1 Samuel. The context is likely very much the same context in which this psalm was written. Most commentators actually trace this back to that time period in David's life. David was surrounded by the ablest, by the most powerful men in Israel. And by that I mean those who were pursuing him, not those who joined him in Adullam. Saul had focused upon David, singled him out for adversity, and now he commanded all of the armies of Israel to chase him, urged all of Israel's best to aim for David's destruction. And in the midst of all of that, friend, what this psalm teaches us is that he he says he could sleep. Now you could imagine, couldn't you, friend, just how one might respond to that possibility. A man sleeping in the face of such danger. Could you sleep, really, David? With, so, with a host surrounding you, chasing you from the land of your nativity, running you into the only place of safety that is nothing less than a heathen people. How can you sleep, friend? You would imagine in a context like this that the man could not sleep. He would be pacing the walls, going from wall to wall, imagining all of the anxieties. All of the imagined destruction that awaited him outside of that cave. And David sleeps. You say, fine, well, well maybe the body can give out. Maybe, maybe the mind is still running, but, but the body is so fatigued it just has to, it has to collapse and sleep. David says he sleeps in peace. How can he sleep in peace? When really just outside... There are 100 different, different destructions that could befall him. 
10,000 scenarios of misery. How can he say that he's in peace? Then he says this, that he's in safety all the while. In safety. David, you're running like a hunted animal. You need to supplicate with the king of Moab just for the safety of your mother and father. How can you say that you're in safety? Friend, what this psalm teaches us is that the psalmist could say confidently that he could sleep soundly, that he could sleep in peace, and that he was in safety because God had promised. Friend, this is the point. I don't know how to stress it more than I can. I want you to notice, friend, that the promise that the psalmist lays hold of here is not of kingship. Do you notice that? Look just back to the fourth psalm again. Friend, as you look through that, you don't have a single mention of that which was specially given to David through Samuel the prophet. You don't have any promise that is specific or peculiar to David. Nothing about his kingship or his dynasty. What is the promise that the man lays hold of here that is so real to him? That it's even real to him in the midst of all of these pinging afflictions. Staggeringly, friend, it's the benediction that was common to all of God's people. He doesn't go to that which was only for him. But he goes to that which was in common with all of those who look to God through his Messiah by faith. And there he hangs his life in his comfort. Friend, he does so because that is the substance of the covenant. The kingship was truly promised to him. A lineage was secured to him by the word of God. But the substance of the covenant, as David says on his very deathbed, was his only hope. And he built his life on those promises. And so friend, if you're a weak and a stumbling believer this evening, wondering how can can I rest in such a way where the promises are more real to me than my anxieties? David would say, you have no greater promise than what I rest in. If you're looking to Christ by faith. So it begs the question of you and I, how do you read the promises? How do you sit under the pastoral benediction? David did not do so mindlessly. He exercised faith all the while. And friend, the question is, is that how you hear such things? I want you to notice, friend, in this text, what you have here is not the exercise of faith where the man, the woman, says that that God has promised good things to his people. It's not a faith that goes perhaps a step further and says God has promised and will perform the good that he's given to his people. Friend, what this psalm shows us is that this faith 
takes the promises that were given in common to all of God's people and personally appropriates them as though they were spoken to him alone. Friend, that is what faith, a vital faith, will do. It will take that which is in common to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and say these things are true for me now. It won't hold them at arm's length. And in such an affliction as this is, it mustn't. It cannot. He can't live on the possibility. No, he must hold on the fact that the, that the Lord God who has promised has promised these things specifically to all who look to Christ. And as he looks to Christ, these things are his. Friend, that brings us to our second and our final question this evening. And that is, evidently for the psalmist, the promises of God were just as real to him as his distresses. But they weren't always so. I want you to remember at the end of 1 Samuel, David says in his heart, in his heart, that one day he will perish by the hand of Saul. Likely that was written after the composition of this fourth psalm. So the question is, friend, if this faith is something that will fluctuate in the life of the believer, are you striving? Are you striving to preserve it? David will oscillate between strong faith and such a persuasion. It's striking how the Hebrew brings that out. He is convinced in his bones, as it were, that he will perish by the hand of Saul. That's, of course, not how we see the psalmist in this fourth psalm. So friend, are you pleading as you must plead for an increase of faith? Friend, this is not something that you and I arrive to suddenly or constantly. It's something that we must seek all our life through. Friend, more than pleading for deliverances, you and I should be pleading for an increase of faith because the psalmist says it's in the increase of that faith he was enlarged. As we close, friend, this is a clarion call to resolve by grace, to live in faith. And here's what that means. As we hold all of this fourth psalm together, the psalmist says that to trust in the Lord in this way is simply to have a true perception of reality. It's not to imagine other worlds, another dimension. It's to trust in that which is actually true. True now. It's to perceive a right. And so, friend, that's what you and I are called to do. The psalmist, as he called his interlocutors, so the text calls every one of us, to take the spectacles that scriptures offer, the promises of God, and allow that to correct our misperceptions to carry forth the promises of God as they are more real than our anxious fears. May the Lord lead us for his own namesake to do just that this evening.